I don't know if you've ever played the game, I doubt it, but I'm here to tell you it's more than a card game, that phrase. It's something that we think, something that we say regularly in life. I I know this, when you go to the checkout and you see the tabloid headlines, a lot of times you're saying, I doubt it. At least you're thinking that. Like the one I heard of, severed leg hops to hospital. (laughs) I doubt it. Or here's a good one, 174 mile per hour sneeze blows off the hair of a woman. And we say, I doubt it. We get something in the mail. It says, congratulations, you've just won a free. And we go, I doubt it. A friend tells you a story they claim is totally true. The story they heard from the friend's cousin, sister's aunt. And you're going, I doubt it. We doubt a lot of things, don't we? The sign that says wet paint. Talk to Neil. He'll tell you all about it. We doubt the scale at the doctor's office. Or is it the one at home? We doubt the proverbial answer to the question that we ask a friend or our spouse. Honey, how do I look? And by the look on their face, we often think, I doubt that's what they mean. Now, those things are kind of trivial. No, they are trivial. Okay, maybe the last one's a little sensitive. But when it comes to some other things, then, it, then all of a sudden these doubts become way more serious. We doubt someone's friendship because the word's gotten out that they're saying one thing to our face and another thing behind our back. We doubt someone's commitment. Maybe a spouse's commitment. Maybe a parent's commitment. We doubt their word we found out that they haven't always been truthful. And so now we doubt if they're telling us the truth. We don't know what to say when they promise to stop doing what's been so hurtful. And it's been like 10 times you've heard it. And we, we wrestle with that. That's hard. And then there are the doubts that creep into faith or prevent us from faith. Maybe you're at this place where you go, man, I, I wonder if this is true. I wonder if Christianity is true. I mean, how could it be the only, how could it be the only way to God? Christ, the only way to God? How could a loving God send someone to hell? How could a God who's loving and powerful allow for all the mess in this world, the suffering in this world? And, and then we go, oh, this is a whole different thing. And so what happens when we say, as a Christ follower, Hey, I'm not sure if it's true. What do we need? Well, the interesting thing, we're going to be looking at the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, one of four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all right? We're going to hang out with Dr. Luke for this school year. And it's really interesting to go to the front end of front end of the book of Luke and the back end and find out that you've got stories of two people that are wrestling with the question, how can I be sure it's true? In chapter 1, we meet up with this Gentile who's a follower of Christ, who's been taught, but he's not 100% sure. He's asking it. And we also meet this Jewish priest, a very religious man who has not been taught, but actually been told this is what God says through an angel. And he's, asked, he's asking the same question. How can I know for sure it's true? 
And then at the back end of the book, we run into two disciples of Jesus on the Sunday after he's been crucified, and they're walking out of Jerusalem, scratching their head. They don't even know they're walking with Jesus at this point. And they're just asking the question, we thought he was the Messiah. But it doesn't add up. He's been crucified on a Roman cross. And today the women tell us someone's stolen his body. And they're wondering, is it true? And so before we jump in and wrestle with how we can know and what to do in times of doubt to prevent us from faith or chip away at our faith, it's good to kind of get the lay of the land on the Gospel of Luke. So a word about the author. He's called Dr. Luke by Paul in Colossians. He's one of his traveling companions. He's written two volumes, this author. He's written the gospel, which talks all about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And then the book of Acts gives us the ascension of Christ into heaven and what Christ continued to do through his spirit-filled apostles. Now, the apostles sound like they could be the husbands of the epistles or the epistles, whatever. But the apostles, here's who they are. They're actually the disciples, same group, who've now been sent out. That's what the word apostle means. They've been sent out with the message that they carry through the known world. And Acts gives us that early history of the church. But here's what's cool about Luke and Acts. Both of them are addressed to the same guy named Theophilus. The we sections, as you read through the book of Acts, go to the first person plural because it's likely that Luke is writing those sections and he was part of the team that was traveling with Paul. At the end of Paul's life, he mentions Luke as a faithful friend who's been with him through to the end. His name's a Greek name. He's very likely a Gentile. He's not one of the disciples, okay? He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God. It's also a Greek name. We know he's been taught and he's a believer, but he's not 100% sure. We know he's addressed by Luke as most excellent Theophilus. That most excellent phrase is used in Acts 24 when Paul addresses King Felix or the governor Felix. So he's probably a man of position or of prominence. So how do we read a book in the Bible like a gospel? We we need to remember, you know, the word comes to us as literature. And the kind of literature we're dealing with here is narrative. It's story. It's stories that have interspersed within it the teachings of Jesus. So it's not to be read like a biography on Jesus. It's more like a portrait. And Luke and the other authors have carefully arranged things in a particular order and putting things in front and around those things for a purpose. And so we're always reading with our eyes wide open to the bigger picture of how this stuff connects. We're going to see a beautiful example of that right here in chapter one. So let's dig in and we meet this guy named Theophilus, this lover of God. Verse one. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. All right, so we've got this guy that Luke knows. That's why he's put Theophilus in the very introductory remarks. He knows this guy, and he knows where he's at. He knows he's struggling at some level of doubt. He's not 100% sure that the things he's been taught about Christ and the gospel are true. So he has written this. And so it's a good thing to go, what did Theophilus need to know? What do you need to know to gain certainty? And the first thing is he needed to know what he was holding in his hand when he got Luke's gospel. So what does Luke tell him, tell us? Because remember, it's written to Theophilus and those who would read the gospel in the very first century. But it's written for us, not to us, for us. So we want to understand it in its context before we bring it home and apply it to ourselves. So what does he tell us? Verse 1, there are many accounts. What's the point of that? He's saying, look, this isn't a one-off. I wasn't dehydrated in the desert and had this wild vision, and I'm the only one who's had it. No, this falls in line with the other gospel accounts. The earliest, we believe, is Mark's gospel. So you can compare it, Theophilus, to the other accounts. It's in good stead with those other accounts. It'll hold up to the other accounts. Not only that, he says, it's an account of what's been fulfilled. This is tied to the Old Testament, he's saying. I want you to know, this just doesn't come out of nowhere like a rabbit out of a magician's hat. This is accounts of what has been fulfilled. What does that mean? What the New Testament writers are doing from the Gospels to the book of Acts, the history of the church, to the letters to the churches and individuals, they're making this case that this Jesus of Nazareth is actually the one that the Old Testament prophets were writing about when they said, there's going to be one, Genesis 3.15, Moses writes, that's going to come, a descendant of Eve, that's going to crush the enemy's head. He was talking about this coming Savior, this one who would be a descendant of Abraham, who would bring blessing, not just to the people of Israel, but to all the families of the world. This one who'd be a descendant of David, David's son, who would set up this eternal kingdom, and he'd reign forever. This one, Isaiah says, who'd be a suffering servant, who would take the punishment in our place, that we might have peace with God and no peace. And the New Testament writers are always doing, Christ, he's the one. This Jesus of Nazareth, he's the promised Savior of the Old Testament. That's what they're doing. That's what he's saying. This account about Christ is tied to the promises of the Old Testament. Not only that, he says it's tied to the eyewitness accounts of those he calls the servants of the word. He's talking about the apostles, who, remember, were the disciples. Now, I don't know if you know this part, but when Judas was replaced the requirement was for the new apostle that he'd been with Jesus from the very beginning. That is, that he'd seen his life, heard his teachings, he saw that he was crucified on the cross, and he was an eyewitness to his resurrection. They had to be an eyewitness. And he's saying, my account that I'm giving to you, Theophilus, comes through the account of the eyewitnesses, which means, implication is, if there's anything I'm saying that isn't true, those guys are still living. And they'll, they'll tell you up or down if this is true. 
And the last thing he says is, I carefully investigate. He's a doctor. That's what he does. He pays attention to details. I carefully investigated and put it in order for this person. Purpose, so that you would have certainty, verse 4, about the things you've been taught. He needed to know what he was holding in his hands. That's a good thing as you join us for this study this year, for you to remember that's Luke's claim. That's his claim. Now there's a second thing he needed to know. And that's where he starts off then after the introduction. That Theophilus needed to know the story of Zachariah. And what's cool about this is Zachariah's story is only found in one gospel here. It's in Luke's. And it's there for a reason, and you'll see it real quick. In fact, Luke's gospel, 30% of it is not found in any of the other gospels. It just shows about his careful study. So he needed to hear the story of Zechariah, this priest, this man who teaches God's word, who knows God's word, has memorized God's word, and then hears God's word, and let's find out what happens. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, let's get the setting. We're in, we're in a place called Judea. It's under Roman rule, modern-day Israel, Palestine. Herod is the king. He rules under Rome, been put there. He rules from 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. We're at the end of his reign. Judea is that area surrounding Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem. Zechariah, his name means God remembers, which is good to remember as we go on the story. And he's a priest. He's from the division. There's There's 24 divisions, and he's from the division of Abijah. He's a descendant of Aaron. All the priests were descendants of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. In fact, Elizabeth, his wife, was a descendant of Aaron. And they're both good people, godly people, blameless people, and they were living with deep disappointment. Godly people who weren't being punished. Godly people who were going through some some serious loss, heartache. They couldn't have a child. It's a big deal in that day, a huge deal. And one of the things in that day is children as they are today in our church would be seen as a blessing. What's not right is a lot of people would think, well, if they didn't have children, they must have really messed up somehow. And so there's a sense of disgrace. Children, in a sense, were your social security system. That's who takes care of you. That's true in so many parts of the world today. So they're going through a hard thing. All right, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, we're now at the temple in Jerusalem, he was chosen by lot. They cast lots. It's like rolling the die. And they were doing that according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So, by division, the priests were assigned two weeks in the year to have this unique privilege to actually serve in the temple. The rest of the year, they're teaching people and helping people scattered around Israel. 
It's his great week, and his great week becomes his great day, the day that he's longed for all his life as a priest, that he would be able to offer incense at the altar of incense on behalf of the of the people of God. They're assembled on the outside. He's there in the holy place. So let me show you Herod's temple here and kind of walk you through it. So this is actually a really big place. So here's our current football field, kind of the footprint of it. Here's the footprint of the temple. It's big. Herod's temple was 20 stories high here. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is the court of Israel. This is the holy place where he walked in. That's the place they go one time in their life. And the reason he's walking in, right, is because God is part of the details of even having those lots cast on his name. Inside that holy place, there's this table right here, the showbread. There's this uh, candelabra right here, and then there's the altar of incense. And then this, this thing right here is the curtain, kind of that bluish bluish uh, faded area there, shaded area, and then behind it, the Holy of Holies, where priests would only go in once. That's the temple curtain that broke from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the gospel writers tell us. So he's there, and they would offer sacrifices at 9 in the morning and at 3, just as the law prescribed. So here's an example of that in Exodus 29. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs, a year old, offer one in the morning and the other at twilight, 9 and 3. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. Now just remember that line, speak to you, because Zechariah forgot that was in the Old Testament. So he selected. It's his big day, and he moves in with his censer full of the hot coals on the altar to place it there on the altar of incense to restock it, so to speak, so the incense perpetually is going up before God, like the praises and worship of God's people, that they would be a pleasing aroma, so to speak, before God. So what happens? Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at his right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And my wife is well along in years. So he's to be named John, right? John means the Lord is gracious. John's going to be a unique figure in biblical history. He is this one that the Old Testament prophet Malachi and Isaiah prophesied about who would come and prepare people and prepare the way for people to meet the Messiah. He's going to be this forerunner. He's going to be this one 
who has special power. And he is going to be unique, not just in his message, but even in the way he looks in his life. No fermented drink, no wine. Matthew describes John the Baptist in this way. Chapter 3, verse 4. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair. That was a little unusual. He wore a leather belt around his waist. Look at his diet. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. He was a little different. Because God had a different role for him to play. He'd bring great joy and delight to his parents and to many many other. Now, you got to pay attention to Zechariah's response in verse 18. It's kind of the surprise of the text. We weren't expecting this, right? He's, he's, he's a man of God. He's a man who teaches the word. And he's visited by an angel so brilliant that his knees buckled and he's gripped with fear. And after the, the angel Gabriel says, I've got good news for you. Your prayer has been answered and your wife is going to give birth to a son. This godly man says, give me a sign. Prove it. I don't believe it. Now, this actually is humorous. So let's just think about what's going on here. When's the last time you think Zechariah was talking to an angel? Hello? What do you mean you need a sign? It's like, I can hear Gabriel going, really? I mean, who do you think I am? Chop liver? Like, when's the last time you were talking to an angel, dude? I mean, just, there's, gotta find the humor. I mean, it's there. This is humorous. It's like, are you kidding me? Well, that's not what Gabriel said. What did he say? My name is Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. What is he saying? He's saying, Zachariah, I was just in God's presence. He gave me this message for you. This is for you. There's a couple things that we don't want to miss here, not just the humor of it, but the point of it. That has everything to do with our wrestling with doubts and faith. A great way to just kind of build a construct on what is faith. Faith fundamentally is taking God at his word. And there's two ways we do that. Obeying his commands and believing his promises. Now verse 3 says he's doing a work on obeying his commands. Blameless. Kept all the commands of God. When it comes to believing his promise that he's going to actually hold a son, man, he's, he's failing. He is completely failing. And you know why he's failing? Because why we often fail. It didn't make sense to him. It didn't seem possible because where his eyes were was on the realities of his circumstance. That is, that he's old, they've been praying for a long time, they're past childbearing years, it just ain't going to happen. Living a long time with deep disappointment can do that to faith. Chip away at it. Take a heart that once was just brimming with faith, full of hope, and seeing that all shrivel up into something that's very skeptical and cynical. 
What a grace that God took this really hard thing that could have shipwrecked him and used it to be a really good thing. What a good thing to keep going back to that God uses hard things for good. What a good thing to remember if you're right now in that hard thing. And maybe you are thinking, it's because I must have really messed up and God's after me. What a good thing to remember that that's not who our God is. He's a God who is for us. He's for us. So he forgot who he was talking to. He forgot that our God is the God of the impossible. And I wonder what it is that has us doubting his promises today. So Gabriel says, okay, you want to sign? I thought I was going to be enough, but here's two more. Verse 20. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. That's your sign. Verse 62 of chapter 1 says, actually, he wasn't just mute, but he he was actually deaf. Because in verse 62, the people are doing a lot of motions with their hands to communicate with him because he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. You want a sign? You're not going to be able to speak or hear until the baby's born. And the second sign, by the way, will be the baby is going to be born and that'll prove that what you're not sure of is true. So the conversation with Gabriel must have taken a while because in verse 22, it says, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. So this isn't supposed to, this happens every day. This isn't supposed to take this long. Like, what's going on? Has this guy been struck by God somehow and he's dead in there? What is going on? So the priest would come out of the holy place. The people gathered around worshiping God. And then he would utter and pronounce the ironic blessing from number 16. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord grant you favor and be with you. Well, where is he? When are we going to get blessed? Well, when he came out, they realized something definitely had happened in there. Verse 22. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. That's right, right here. Luke chapter 1, verse 22, the first recorded game of charades. (laughs) So I was thinking, how would I do this? So here's my version of what Zechariah should have done. Halo, wings, heaven. Speaking to me, about, hopefully Elizabeth's right there, Elizabeth, she's going to have a baby, right? It kind of seems simple. They didn't get it. It said he had to keep repeating it. Well, maybe they just were bad at playing the game of charades. They never played it before, right? Maybe he was bad at, I don't know. Maybe Elizabeth wasn't there. Maybe she was back in the village. We don't know. All we know is they didn't get it. Maybe the look on this face was going, this can't be good news. The guy is terrified. I mean, he had to be ashen white from what happened. All we know is the text tells us that he went home to the foothills of Judea. And a while later, Elizabeth was pregnant. And he couldn't 
hear a word of praise or utter a word of praise? So that's one of the things I was noodling on this week. Why do you take away his speech? Why do you take away his hearing? So Aaron, the first priest, had a sister who kind of went off. Remember this story in the Old Testament? She said, well, who do you think you are, Aaron, Moses? Moses, excuse me. Yeah, it would be Aaron's sister. It would be Moses' sister. And she's going off with her brother Aaron. They're going, Moses, who do you think you are? Do you think you're the only person God talks to? And remember what happened to her? She got struck with leprosy. I was thinking, well, why not blindness? Why not leprosy? Why did he take away his speech? Why did he take away his hearing? Was it, is, it, is our worldview? Well, that's just how God is. He's kind of spiteful. You want to listen to my words? I'm not going to let anybody listen to your words. In fact, you're not going to be able to listen to anybody's words. Two can play at this game. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. And it's so easy to allow our feelings to put God on trial and actually redefine his character. That's not what God's doing when he takes away his ability to hear and speak. This was a hard thing, but it was a gracious thing. It makes me think of my friend Jeannie. Jeannie came to the elders at our church in Wheaton, and she was this great woman with a tender heart for God. She was a piano teacher. That's how she made her living, and she, she just crunched her thumb, and it was all bent up, and she said, I, I'm wanting you to pray that God would heal my crooked finger because without it, it really jeopardizes my profession and my ability to earn a living. And so we said, we'd love to meet with you. And when she came, she said, God's been teaching me that this finger is pointing out something that's crooked in my heart. And one of the gracious things that God was doing to Zacharias saying, you know, actually your problem's not with your ears and your mouth. Your heart's not open to me. And when your heart's not receptive to me, it's really important to know that that you keep yourself from what you were created for a relationship with me. And the silence that is going to be so difficult, I I want that just to teach you about what happens when you cut yourself off from my word. It is going to be so hard and so lonely and isolated. It is going to just shrivel any joy you have in your life. And what a grace, and what a grace for him to have time to focus on the only words that he could understand. And it would be the word of God that he'd either committed to memory or that he had in his possessions as he opened up the scrolls of the Old Testament scriptures and dove deep into God's word. Which is exactly what I'd encourage you to do when you find yourself in a really hard place. And go right to the Psalms. And you'll find somebody who feels like you, who's longing for the things that you're longing for, who's putting God on trial like you might be right now, and you'll find it a sweet balm for your aching heart. So what did Theophilus need? He needed to know what he was holding in his hands. He needed to know the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And he needed to be encouraged by the surprise. The surprise is Zachariah the godly man who's a priest, hears God's word and he doesn't think it's true. 
He was wrestling. And if that could happen to a priest, Luke's saying, Theophilus, don't beat yourself up. It could happen to any of us. And it was good for him to hear that story. Good for him to hear in this story that God hears prayers that we have long forgotten or we think he's long forgotten. Good to remember that God's in the details of even the role of a die, the casting of a lot. Good to remember that God is patient and gracious with doubters. And though we doubt, he's not dependent on our faith to work for our good and work out his purposes. Good to remember that God kept his word to a guy named Zechariah who doubted it. So here's my challenge. For those of us on the journey with Christ, don't run from doubt. Don't let doubts freak you out. It's part of what the Bible calls the fight of faith. It's good to read a verse like Matthew 28, 17, after the resurrection, it says Jesus went up to the mountain with the 11 disciples and they worshiped him. And then this little tagline at the end, but some doubted. I'm going, really? You think they doubted? They just saw him nailed to a cross. They're touching his resurrected body. How could they doubt? Matthew said they doubted. And if they doubted in the presence of a resurrected Christ, Give yourself a break. Don't build a construct that says those two things couldn't be operating within a person who loves Christ. Jude says, be gentle with those who doubt. Start with yourself. What I'd say, though, is embrace doubt. Work through the things that you question about your faith. Don't settle for this phrase, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. You know what? There's a lot of truth to that. But you know what? Nobody wrote that in the crucible of life. And when your friend's there, it ain't going to help them very much. But I'll tell you what will. You stay under the weight of that. You take those doubts and the hard things that bring and raise up those doubts, and you treat them like weights on a barbell that are there to build faith. Let it make you strong. Get to the bottom of why it is that you can be sure as you wrestle with those doubts. Talk to other people so that you might be there to help other people, not with pat answers that are ridiculous, but rooted in your own life experience. And as you stay under the weight of those doubts and those trials, remember, recount, rehearse in your mind, all the ways that God has been faithful to you, your story. It's great to remember how he's faithful to Zechariah. It's great to remember how he's faithful to Israel. But there's something else about how he was faithful to you, to your family, to your marriage, to your child, in that crisis, in this situation, to your friend, to recount that. Because when we're wrestling with the future promise and we lose sight of the past record of his faithfulness, whew, that's going to be really hard. Recount Remember, and then let me challenge someone here today who right now is finding great comfort in this category called, and it exists, an intellectual doubt category. So heart circumstances can do it. Intellectual wrestlings can do it. But here's what I've seen often happen with Christ followers. 
they get to a place in their life where they tell us, I just don't know if I believe it anymore. And I start hearing their story and I'm going, well, actually, it's not that you don't believe it anymore. It's that you're not living it anymore. And there's a crisis because you either have to change your behavior or your beliefs and you're not willing to change your behavior. And so you've got to change your beliefs. And it's not an intellectual crisis of faith that you're in. It's actually a living out your faith crisis that you're in and you've confused the categories. Maybe that's you today. And here's what I can say. The quickest way through this tough time right now is turning around. It's turning around. It's the Bible says. Turn around and realign your heart and your life to Christ. But I'm telling you, pride in us will want to knock us off that path every time. For those of you who go, I'm considering Christ, following his ways, becoming a Christ follower, questioning Christianity, wherever you're at. Maybe you say even a skeptic. Here's what I'd say. Read the Gospel of Luke. Take a look at face value, what he just said, what he's given us here. Bring your questions to it. Grab a Bible. If you don't have one, connecting point. I'll get you a new Bible today. Walk out with a new Bible. If uh, you don't know about Alpha, Alpha is a 10-week course. It starts in a couple of weeks. You can learn all about it in here. It's a great study for you to join a bunch of other people, have an unbelievable meal, get your questions answered, wrestle with the presentations that talk about what following Christ is all about. And then I tell you to bring something new into your equation. So right now, if you're honest, you'd say, you know, I'm putting everybody else on trial, their belief systems, their positions that they hold to. In Keller, in his excellent book, The Reason for God, A Belief in the Age of Skepticism, asks you and I to take a little different turn on this. Listen to what he says. But even as believers should learn to look for reasons behind their faith, skeptics must learn to look for a type of faith hidden within their reasoning. All doubts, however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternate beliefs. You cannot doubt belief A except from a position of faith in belief B. For example, if you doubt Christianity because there can't be just one true religion, you must recognize that this statement is itself an act of faith. No one can prove it empirically, and it's not a universal truth that everyone accepts. If you went to the Middle East, for example, he said, there can't be just one God and true religion, you say? Nearly everyone would say, why not? The reason you doubt Christianity's belief A is because you hold unprovable belief B. Every doubt, therefore, is based on a leap of faith. Wow, that changes the paradigm. I encourage you to consider that. For all of us, let's remember that reading God's word is not any other book. It doesn't matter that it's a bestseller. What matters is it's the power of God. It's a living word. And this word, when we hear it, Romans ten seventeen says, it actually gifts us and grows faith. And for all of us, we remember that when Zachariah, when Zachariah wondered, how can I be sure? God's answer was, I'm going to give you a son. And when you and I Wonder, how can I be sure it's true? God's response to us is because I gave you my son. 
the fulfillment of Old Testament longing in Scripture, his life, death, and resurrection for us, the promise coming again when he will make all things right. That truth changes the way I understand God. Jesus helps me understand God. Jesus helps me understand who I am. Jesus helps me understand this world and the mess that we're in and the beauty that we find still in the midst of the mess. Jesus helps me understand where history's going and my place in it. Jesus makes every difference of how I father my five children and do marriage with my wife, Lori, how I think about money and handle money, how I think about someone who's poor and how I treat them, how I deal with tragedy and how I hold on in the tough times makes all the difference. And Luke is going to later pen the words of the angel who said on the night of Jesus' birth, this is good news of great joy for all people. And just in 25 verses, we met a Jew and a Gentile, a man and a woman, a man of prominence and poor people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, a man of distinction and a woman who was covered with disgrace and shame, a a priest that failed and a religious new believer who was struggling. And if it's good news for them, friends, let me suggest it's good news for you and me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for keeping your word. Help us to take you at your word, to obey the commands, to believe your promises, especially now when our feelings are shouting, it's not true, God isn't good, he doesn't love me, he's not in control. Grant enduring faith Draw people to faith as they hear your word and dig into your word. Use places like Alpha. Use friendships that are formed here in this room, those listening, to encourage a walk of faith. And may that faith bring us to a place that it brought Elizabeth, saying, God, thank you for answering my prayer. Thank you for showing me favor. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.